Excited Utterance, The Evidence and Proof Podcast, Episode Number 67, John Lubstorf, Evidentiary Fringes. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is John Lubstorf. John is Distinguished Professor of Law and Judge Lacey Scholar at Rutgers Law School. John writes in the areas of civil procedure, legal ethics, evidence, and law and literature. Our podcast today features John's new article, Fringes, Evidence Law Beyond the Federal Rules. It was published in the Indiana Law Review. In it, John explores evidentiary rules that, for a variety of reasons, were not canonized into the federal rules of evidence, and by extension, into state rules of evidence. Many of these rules remain recognized in a variety of jurisdictions, including under federal law, They just aren't found in the FRE. This group of evidentiary fringes, as John terms them, spans a spectrum. For example, the Confrontation Clause technically qualifies, but has received plenty of attention in recent years. John instead focuses on more neglected evidentiary fringes, which he divides into three groups. Rules requiring corroboration, rules creating a special regime for sex offenses, and finally rules deeply connected to the adversary system, like the doctrine of curative admissibility. My discussion with John will expound on some of these rules, and more broadly, the deeper question of what exactly comprises the field of evidence. John, delighted to have you on Excited Utterance. Welcome. Thank you. I'm really glad to be here. Your article focuses on something you call fringes, evidentiary rules that are found in many states and sometimes even under federal law, but end up being neglected because they were not codified in the federal rules or their state counterparts. What got you interested in these rules, and why did you feel that it was important to reclaim them in a sense? Well, I kept on coming across them in one area or another, and as we usually do, brushing them aside. And then gradually it began to penetrate that there was a good deal of law out there, evidence law, that I didn't really know. So I thought at least I should find out what it is. And it it also fits somewhat into a general concern of mine about evidence law, which is that the subject is less rational than we would like to believe. So although there is the sort of the picture of evidence law evolving and at least trying to become more rational and more organized, there are always these peculiar things. Of course, in the case of evidence law, there are plenty of peculiar things right in the standard area. So one doesn't really have to look outside, but still there's always the thought that if you bring something in from outside, your perspective on what's inside will now be different. Yeah, so in effect, we're trying to systematize all the things inside the circle, so to speak. And if we've left out a bunch of things, 
perhaps we haven't actually systemized at all and you're not actually rationalizing the system. Right. In drawing, there's this concept of negative space, which is that you might, instead of looking at the object you're trying to draw, look at the space between them and draw that. And in a sense, that's one of the things I'm trying to do in this article. Why do you think these particular rules were left out? In your article, you talk a little bit about how they often get lumped together with a specific substantive area rather than pulled out in this trans-substantive area of evidence. Is there any particular advantage for thinking about these fringes as evidence rules as opposed to an appendage to a substantive area? I think there is because many of them involve exactly the kinds of considerations that we rely on in evidence law, probative value and waste of time and so forth. And also they might be alternatives to some of the approaches that we use in evidence law. And why do you think it was left out? Why did they get kicked to the curb on this codification effort? Well, I have two basic ideas here. One is that some of these rules involve two witness rules. And the trend certainly for a long time has been to reject these as mechanical and as inappropriate to connect them with the medieval two witness rules, which grew up on the continent and which the continent has long since rejected and therefore to exclude them. Although though many of these rules, all of them, in fact, are not really variants of or survivals of the medieval rules. That's one theory. The other theory is just blame it all on Thayer, because you can find that most of the things I discuss were included in evidence law treatises, in Wigmore, in Greenleaf, and in those people. But then with Thayer, they get excluded. And I see Thayer as doing what many academics were doing at the time, especially in law, but not just in law, and that is to try to define the boundaries of their disciplines. So he has a long discussion, for instance, of the parole evidence rule, which he quite persuasively says is really a rule of contract law. And I think he was doing more or less the same thing with some of these other rules. And then in addition, he defined the area of evidence law so as not to include considerations of the sufficiency of evidence and not to include subjects such as the what you might call the adversarial administration of evidence, how these rules are modified, uh, put into operation in an adversary system. So all those exclusions now in turn shape the academic discipline and are carried forward ultimately in the, the federal rules of evidence, but before that in the, the model code and the model rules. What was Thayer's theory for excluding rules that dealt with sufficiency? I think when we think about evidence, perhaps in a modern sense, we think about evidence and proof together. In fact, this podcast talks about evidence and proof. And so it's a funny thing to my mind to take sufficiency requirements and place them aside. I guess Thayer's view was something like only things that limit the evidence the jury hears. That was his definition. It seems awfully cramped to me. Well, of course, we have to remember that 
what Thayer wrote, his main writing, was intended as an introductory volume. So he might have gotten around to other things later on. But as far as I can see, he does do it more or less by fiat. He says, this is what I consider the law of evidence. It might again be some idea that the sufficiency of evidence was part of procedural law or was part of either civil law or criminal law because it differs in civil and criminal cases. But I can't say I found him saying that. Let's talk about your first example, which are corroboration requirements. For my part, I think I know of corroboration in the rape context, but your article talks about other instances in which corroboration is required. And of course, largely corroboration rules are not covered in the federal rules. Correct. So the rape requirement, of course, is now essentially defunct, but there are others. One is in the Constitution for treason. Two witnesses are required. For perjury, two witnesses are also required, although I can't say I was aware of that until relatively recently. Then certain kinds of witnesses are in most states deemed to require some form of corroboration. An accomplice testimony is not enough in itself to convict someone. The defendant's confession is not enough to convict the defendant. In many states, circumstantial evidence is supposed to be corroborated. And then there are a variety of statutes requiring corroboration in particular circumstances. And then as a sort of catch-all, there are certain kinds of things that also lead to some sort of corroboration requirement. So one is the attempt to show that someone other than a criminal defendant did it which seems to be regarded with a lot of suspicion by courts in general. In many states, it certainly would not be enough if you had, for example, an out-of-court statement by someone admitting to the crime. Uh, and then, you know, and this is getting to the, the fringes of the fringes, dead person statutes still exist in a few states, which say that the statement of a dead person can't be used against the estate unless corroborated. So these are all situations in which more than one witness is supposed to be required. They are virtually all in criminal law, though obviously the dead person statute and uh, some of the others are not. And then there are two of them that have crept into the federal rules. One is a declaration against penal interest, which under the federal rules has to be supported. And the other is a finding that someone is a co-conspirator and therefore fits into the co-conspiracy exception to the hearsay rule. The hearsay statements themselves are not enough to authorize a court in finding that the statements were made as part of a conspiracy. What's been the consequence of this break? Some of these rules, so you referenced 804b3 and 801d2e, some of the corroboration rules have made it into the federal rules. Many of the other ones have been neglected by the federal rules. And in fact, I think if you ask most of us, some of us have heard of some of these statutes. I think I remember the dead man statutes from my bar review, but really not on my radar. 
what's been the consequence? Is it that the idea of corroboration has been under-theorized, or is there inconsistency in the way that we think about corroboration? Well, one consequence is that almost all of these rules are not going to be applied in federal court. The treason and perjury are dead person statutes uh, are governed by state law and federal court, but in general, the others aren't going to apply. And I think under-theorization is likely because these rules are therefore going to be left to the state courts. Each state will probably have a slightly different rule, and no one is going to pay much attention to them. Now, the other thing is people haven't been thinking, are these really some kind of medieval practice, or is there something to be said for them, in which case one might expand them into new areas? Uh, for instance, I, I believe someone has already suggested, what about a statement made as part of a deal with the government? Should that be enough? Would it make any sense to require some sort of further corroboration? Let me push a little bit on your point about medieval, and you talked about this earlier in our discussion. This idea of counting witnesses is generally, I think, disfavored, or most of us think that it's a historical relic. Are they truly gone, or are they too also on the evidentiary fringe and certain jurisdictions have witness counting rules, I think beyond the treason example that you gave earlier in the Constitution? Well, I think all the things that I've given could be considered witness counting rules, but I don't think any state has a rule that all criminal convictions must be based on more than one witness, except they would be much more limited to treason and to perjury. And in fact, possibly because of the two witness rule, treason prosecutions seem to be more or less extinct. The government will prosecute for various other crimes, which have a lot to do with treason, but doesn't prosecute for treason. And Treason is mainly invoked by politicians who are charging this person or that person with treason, often uh, without any witnesses. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to actually skip over the second group of rules in your article, which deal with sexual abuse and domestic violence, and not because they're not important, but because I feel like we've often talked about those rules on this podcast already. I'd like to move to your third group which are what you term something like adversarial process rules. Tell me about these rules, which haven't made it into the federal rules. Okay, well, there are two kinds of them that I discuss. One is retaliation, and we know it by different names. Uh, So-and-so opened the door, curative admissibility, fighting fire with fire, and the idea being that If one party goes beyond the rules of evidence and is allowed to introduce inappropriate evidence, the other side is also allowed to introduce evidence that would normally have been considered equally inadmissible. And those rules, they sort of overlap with various other kinds of rules. There's the completeness principle that if one side introduces part of a statement or a conversation, the other side is able to introduce other parts necessary in order not to mislead. Uh, Dale Nance has written a good deal about that. Another is invited error. If you get the court to make a mistake, you can't complain. 
so that it, it's an overlapping set of approaches. And some of the opinions of the courts make uh, heroic efforts to distinguish one of these doctrines from another one. But that's the first group. The second group is more in the nature of sanctions imposed by the court for litigated behavior. And this, I think, is probably familiar to most of us, at least those of us who also teach civil procedure, because this often concerns spoliation of evidence. If one side fails to produce evidence, or still worse, destroys potential evidence, then the other side will sometimes be allowed to get an instruction from the judge that you can draw inferences against the spoliating party as to what the evidence would have been, or a ruling that certain facts are to be taken as admitted, or I guess the right to show that the evidence was destroyed. So, and, and these have been discussed, but usually, as I say, in the context of civil procedure. And so the question is, what does evidence law have to contribute here? And I think what evidence law has to contribute, and, and I didn't really expect to conclude this when I started, but what evidence law has to contribute is somewhat of skepticism about these various remedies, because I think most of them really operate as sanctions than as rational inferences. At least that's the general belief, and I'd be interested in some empirical work here. The belief is that if the judge tells the jury so-and-so has destroyed evidence and therefore you can draw reasonable inferences as to what it would have contained, that that is immediate death for that party. So, and not because of the inferences from the rational value of the inference, but more because of perfectly reasonable desire to punish that party. There are other areas which are sort of similar, like evidence that someone has tried to bribe or coerce a witness, same problems arise. So the question that I think evidence law teachers can raise is, are there other ways of sanctioning that behavior without inducing the jury to make incorrect findings of fact out of a desire to punish? Yeah, interesting. There seems to be a link there with some of the forfeiture doctrine that you see in the hearsay context. It's a little bit different in the hearsay context, but yes. there is certainly some intellectual linkage between the two. I want to go back to the first class that you talked about, curative admissibility, door opening, completeness rules. What's your take on those doctrines? Some of them, I think like the completeness rule, are in fact part of the federal rules, but rarely studied in class. Others don't appear in the rules at all. Are these rules archaic and unnecessary in light of the system set up by the FRE? Or are you suggesting that, in fact, these doctrines deserve a certain reinvigoration? And here I think a little bit of these doctrines or principles as equity principles that might be a counterweight to the otherwise law-based evidentiary rules. Uh, well, you can think of that in those terms if you think of equity in some kind of generalized sense, obviously not rules that could be imposed by an equity court on a trial at law. And I don't think they're obsolete by any means because when someone is allowed to introduce inappropriate evidence, there is a question, what do you do about it? 
Now, the question is, how do you deal with it if you adopt too broad a reading of opening the door and so forth? You're then really encouraging people not to object in the hope that now we can finally get around those silly rules of evidence and introduce all the dirt we have on the other side. So that is a question, and indeed there are conflicting views about whether you should be able to rely on these doctrines if you haven't objected. Wigmore took the view that not only could you do that, but if you did object, then you shouldn't be able to rely on these rules. You should be uh, stuck with whatever remedies you could get from the court in trial or on appeal for the erroneous admission. So, you know, there are issues lurking here that I think could make this more rational. Otherwise, you have rules of evidence, but it's quite possible that a significant amount of evidence that's introduced at trial is not evidence that in theory is allowed. Final question for you. What's next? What projects are you pursuing now? Well, my uh, research history has been totally eclectic and skipping from not only from issue to issue, but from field to field. So what I'm now working on is more in the area of law and literature, and it's about trials in Shakespeare and in general comparing trials on the stage with actual trials. So I think it will be more entertaining than the article we're discussing now. Well, certainly there's an evidence component to Shakespeare as well, or at least there's narrative and there's attempts at proof. So that should be a really interesting project. Well, John, thanks for giving us something of a renewed cause to think about these evidentiary fringes and also cause to critically think about what we lose when we just focus on the federal rules of evidence to the exclusion of everything else. Great having you on the show. Was fun. So long. I think it's pretty uncontroversial to say that the federal rules of evidence have been a striking success. Whether through their formal adoption by the majority of states or through their influence on other states, the federal rules have contributed mightily to greater uniformity in evidence practice across the country. Their structure rationalizes what otherwise could be a much murkier and more contested area of law. The rules have given legal proceedings more predictability, and at least in my experience, the rules have helped us teach evidence to students more easily. But codification movements, even good ones or successful ones, have their costs. There's the cost of uniformity, a lack of diversity that inclines a field toward stagnation, the inability to imagine alternatives, and a tendency to forget the hard policy trade-offs that lie beneath the original choices. There's also the problem of being outside the rules. Doctrines that didn't make it into the rules naturally get short shrift, as John suggests. They end up being under-theorized, or inconsistently applied to different substantive areas sort of what we saw with corroboration. They also end up being viewed through the lens of other disciplines, as we saw with spoliation. So I think John's article teaches an important lesson. As evidence researchers, 
we would obviously be remiss not to focus on the federal rules. They are widely applicable, clear, and rationally structured. Why would we go anywhere else? But we are equally remiss if we neglect evidentiary rules or evidence-related doctrines that were left out of the federal rules of evidence. There might lie buried treasure, or if not treasure, at least a few additional perspectives from which to view the project of evidence and proof. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. The associate producer is Alex Nunn, and the production editor is Grace DiPietro. Additional production assistance is provided by Megan Cole, and music is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join me again next time when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof. Thank you.